This is hell. During the pandemic, I don't know about where you live, Alex. I don't know about where our listeners live. I don't even know where they live, thank God. Uh, But there's been a rash of packages being stolen from people's foyers, from in front of people's buildings, unattended packages being stolen because there's been more deliveries happening during the pandemic. So this morning, I come down the stairs and I see this guy walking, like coming towards our building, dragging this... Amazon box, but he's coming towards our building. And I open up the door and I'm like, can I help you with something? And I thought he was an Amazon delivery guy. And he said, this was accidentally delivered to my place a few doors down uh, when it, you know, it's addressed to you. So I thought I'd bring this over here. And I'm looking at this thing and he's like dragging and dragging and dragging it. And I'm like, well, thanks. I appreciate it. You know, I put the box in the house and the foyer. He starts walking away and I stop and I realize That box was delivered to our house last Wednesday, and it's been sitting in our foyer because it's a 40-pound bag of cat litter that I don't want to carry up three flights of stairs. So last night I saw that box at 8 o'clock at night. This morning it's 9.25, and here's this guy dragging it back into our place. Apparently somebody broke into our building, took our 40-pound bag of cat litter, walked four doors down the street with it, decided that was just too far and too much to carry or steal, and then they left it at somebody else's house. So I want to thank my neighbor Dale for uh, retrieving my cat litter box from an attempted theft. I don't even know what that is. It's just confusing. Live from the United States where capitalism is the virus, this is hell. Instructors of higher education at colleges and universities are increasingly overworked and underpaid. With no benefits, poverty wages, and inability to access unemployment, instructors have to find extra work in odd jobs just to pay the rent. When they do work, they're expected to fill the gaps left behind by budget cuts, by tutoring students who do not get the necessary attention in now overcrowded classrooms. The teachers at the lowest end of the pay scale suffer from the precariousness of the gig economy that has now found a new home on campus. Those facing the most precarity are usually the ones teaching the most basic entry-level classes. An instructor distracted by how they will pay their bills this month does not make for good teaching conditions. And if you have poor teaching conditions, you have poor learning conditions. You may not get the education you need and for more advanced classes. Uh, Higher education should not be built upon the weak foundation of poor teaching and learning. These are the same teachers who are most aware of the needs of today's students, yet these instructors often have no say in university governance. It's all due to budget cuts and restraints that force universities to find revenue streams elsewhere, including through financialization and Wall Street. Now saddled with that debt upon enrolling in school, students are immediately paying tuition that no longer goes to the university, but instead goes to paying off interest on Wall Street debt. We'll find out how everything has gone so horribly wrong for higher education instructors in a few when we speak with historian Trevor Griffey, who is the co-author of the American Association of University Professors website article, A New Deal for College Teachers and Teaching, Faculty Equity Equals Student Success, which Trevor co-wrote with Maya McIver. Trevor is a lecturer in labor studies at UCLA, a lecturer in U.S. history at the University of California, Irvine, and vice president of the UC Irvine chapter 
of the University of California American Federation of Teachers. He is the co-founder of the Seattle Civil Rights and Labor History Project and the co-editor of Black Power at Work, Community Control, Affirmative Action in the Construction Industry. You can find out more about Trevor at Trevor Griffey. And thanks to listener Andrew T., who suggested we feature Trevor and Maya's writing on the show. Andrew, who is a lecturer also at UC Irvine's Department of English and Union and Community Liaison of the University of California, American Federation of Teachers, Local 2226. He wrote saying, this is a terrific article which does so much in just a few pages to illustrate the precariousness and unjust labor practices at public higher education institutions. I'm so proud of my own union leadership that they have taken an aggressively left stand as against the tedious, tedious Arne Duncan Obama Department of Education policies. Thanks. Love the show. Drinking my coffee this morning from my This Is Hell tin cup. In every kind of solidarity, Andrew. We appreciate the suggestion, Andrew, and we'll be sharing some more. Oh, well, uh, one more guest suggestion from a listener in a moment. It's Tuesday, which means producing today is Alex Jerry. Alex, what have you been up to? I'm ceding my time today to encourage listeners to look up Demita Joe Freeman's dance performance accompanying Joe Tex's 1973 Soul Train performance for I Gotcha. It's uh, truly joyous, and you find some real gems when you're on your phone at 3 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> the world is a beautiful place, and uh, I'm so tired. Have you ever looked up uh, the dancing of Merce Cunningham? Merce Cunningham. Yes. No, how do you spell Merce? M-E-R-C-E. No. Uh, he would perform to John, John Cage's music. And it's really intense. You've got to look up Merce Cunningham because as a joke nickname I had at one time because I was such a horrible dancer, they would refer to me as Mertz Cunningham. It's been nearly, for me, it's been nearly three weeks since I got vaccinated. And uh, ever since I got my second dose, whenever I go from a sitting to standing position or standing to sitting down, I get momentarily lightheaded and dizzy. So if anyone is having the same kind of reaction, email me at chuck at because it's been almost three weeks now. I'm starting to freak out a little bit. But more importantly than any of that, Alex, what's this week's question from hell for our listening audience? Uh, This week's question from hell on Facebook is, uh, what medieval trade is coming back soon? What medieval trade is coming back soon? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. Just go to thisishell.com and click on support to see all of our swag. And that's what listener Kelly H. did. He went to thisishell.com and showed his appreciation for the show by clicking on support. So thanks, Kelly. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell on our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we have to have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and... And the moment of truth, Alex will have some of your answers to this week's question from Hell following our guest. We got an email at chuck at thisishell.com last night from longtime listener Mitchell, who writes, Hello, Chuck. Just so you know, I contributed to a book that's about to be published, Democratic Economic Planning by Robin Hanel. Robin co-invented the economic model with Michael Albert of ZNet that used to be known as Pericon. Which, but which has now come to be known as a participatory economy. Mitchell says that he worked with Robin to write a sophisticated computer program used for research in the book. Mitchell writes, you've interviewed Robin on This Is Hell in the past back in 2005, as I recall, and you may want to consider interviewing Robin for his new book. I'm copying Robin in on this me- email if you're interested in setting up an interview. Thanks, and keep up the great work, Mitchell. Mitchell is correct. We spoke with Robin back in October of 2005 when he was on to talk about his then-just-published book, Economic Justice and Democracy. However, that interview is not currently available online. 
Unless you are a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell, as our interview with Robin is one of the hundreds we have shared exclusively with Patreon subscribers as we work to rebuild our archives and make all of our past interviews available to everyone for free. Our interview with Michael Albert, who co-authored The Political Economy of Participatory Economics with Robin, is also available on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. So if you want to hear about participatory economics, sign up as a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash this is hell. Thanks, Mitchell. And we look forward to Robin's new book coming out as it is being published at the end of the month, at the end of May. Now, over a year ago, we got an email from Chris who wrote asking, hello, hearing the title of your radio program for the very first time was surprising for me. I've been staunch in the belief that this world is literally hell since an enlightening experience in 2006. I'll be listening to the show, but I'm wondering if your title is based upon such a literal belief. Yes, Chris, enlightening experiences can lead one to believe this literally is hell. And if you are talking about the same kind of enlightenment that is now being prescribed to those suffering from PTSD, yes, a little of that enlightenment, and you're looking around and saying to yourself, Yes, this is hell, and that is what happened to me back in, I think, 1987. So back in March 2021, when Chris wrote that original email, I told him to just listen and decide for yourself if this truly is hell. I even suggested that he listen to our March 2nd, 2021 talk with Raquel Varela about her book, A People's History of the Portuguese Revolution, as well as our February 15th conversation from last year with Sabelo J. Endovu Gacheni on his Black Citizenship Forum article, Black Citizenship and the Problem of Coloniality. But apparently Chris is still struggling with the name of our show. Chris wrote again last night, out of the blue, 14 months later, to say... I greatly appreciate your responsiveness to my previous emails. Thank you for your email, 14 months later, Chris. And the specific shows you suggested are particularly pertinent to my own thoughts and life over the past few years. Still, after listening to those shows and others in your archive, sorry, I still haven't caught the live show yet, I'm not certain as to whether or not your title is figurative or literal, as I have not yet heard any discussion that mentions God or gods or devils other than playing the latter's advocate. If you have episodes that deal with such subjects, I'm very interested in hearing them, and I'll keep listening and hopefully catch you live soon. In any case, because the practical, political, and historical aspects of living in hell are important too. Thank you for your great work, Chris. Chris, I too had an enlightening experience that led me to believe this is hell, but when it comes to this literally being hell... Chris, as Pope Francis said in a 2018 interview, which the church scrambled to explain and has stepped back from since, the Pope said of bad souls, quote, They are not punished. Those who repent obtain God's forgiveness and take their place among the ranks of those who contemplate him. But those who do not respect and cannot be give- forgiven disappear. A hell doesn't exist. The disappearance of sinning souls exists. So, Chris, there is no hell, just nothingness, which would be a kind of hell, that is, if you could recognize that you were in nothingness, in a state of nothing. And when Lucifer was cast out of heaven, he wasn't sent to hell, but to earth, which would suggest that this is 
hell. So Chris, to your question of do I believe this is literally hell, by all the evidence we have compiled doing this show for nearly 25 years with the normalization of racism, misogyny, sexism, violence, war, poverty, and all the dehumanizing brutality we tolerate on a day-by-day, hour-by-hour, minute-by-minute basis, of which we are complicit in, Yes, this could very well be hell because all of those evils every day and seemingly though there is no alternative. We're even normalizing climate change and the planet's destruction with an impatience to get back to the fossil fuel burning normal of globalizing deadly pandemics. And what could be more hellish than us being complicit in our own suffering and demise that it does not have to be imposed on us. We will take care of our own suffering ourselves. One last thing about listener Chris. He apparently is the director of a 2020 documentary, The Illumination of Jim Woodring, which is described thusly. Drawing from childhood hallucinations and haunting visions, cartoonist Jim Woodring challenges mundane perception through his nightmarish cartoon wonderland of terrifying beauty. The acclaimed artist's mind-bending work is admired by cultural icons like Duncan Trussell of The Midnight Gospel, Matt Groening of The Simpsons, Jeff Bridges from The Big Lebowski, and Francis Ford Coppola. And I'm increasingly starting to think that Chris has had more than one enlightening experience. You can send us your comments on the show, guest or topic suggestions to chuck at thisishell.com or you can tweet them to us or message them to us via Facebook. Coming up, what to do about underpaid and overworked higher education instructors. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is what medieval trade is coming back soon. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins whatever piece of This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can go find all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Alex will be telling us who is on tomorrow's show, as well as having more of your answers to this week's question from hell, following our guest. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to, this is hell. College and university teachers are increasingly overworked and underpaid. The profession of teaching higher education has more and more become deprofessionalized, with universities more interested in producing diplomas than actually providing a good education. Today's teachers of higher education face a world greatly influenced by the gig economy with its unstable employment and a lack of any kind of social safety net. If higher education continues down this path, paved by financialization, the future of teaching and learning in the United States is indeed grave. Here to help us get a better understanding of the challenges being faced today by college and university instructors, historian Trevor Griffey is co-author of the American Association of University Professors website, A New Deal for College Teachers and Teaching Faculty Equity Equals Student Success, which Trevor co-wrote with Maya McIver. Welcome to This Is Hell, Trevor. Uh, Good morning. Thank you for having me. Again, we want to thank uh, Andrew T. for suggesting we have Trevor on today's show. You can find out more about Trevor by going to, uh, by following him on Twitter, at Trevor Griffey. I want to jump kind of towards the end, because I think one of the most important things for people to understand is how universities are financed today. You write the research wings of campus labor uh, unions have analyzed and demanded alternatives to the unsustainable financialization of higher education through the selling of bonds to offset government budget cuts or changes in enrollment, a trend that has become worse during the COVID-19 pandemic. Why is financialization of higher education unsustainable? Why is the way we fund universities unsustainable? Well, because it relies on student debt that can never be repaid. Um, That's the short answer. Um, 
what uh, activists, faculty activists at Salem State University were able to pull together. At first, they started in their own struggle. They were faced with budget cuts at their university. And so they did what any uh, good union tries to do, which is promote budget democracy, which means pouring through the budget and saying, can we develop an alternative proposal? And what they discovered in part was that um, their university for years had been floating bonds uh, to pay for the maintenance and uh, construction of new buildings, uh, basically what is called the capital budget of their institution. Um, but those bonds uh, lock you into two different kinds of problems. The first is that they may have variable interest rates that depend on your institution's credit rating. So all of a sudden, your school, even a public school, cedes its authority over its own budget to a private set of uh, people who rate its credit. And that means that those credit rating agencies can exert some degree of influence and control over the governance of public higher education itself, because the punishment for violating their strictures is higher interest rates. And therefore, things that once made no sense to me until Salem State sort of went public and national and is, is now campaigning around this issue and waking up, kind of sounding the alarm uh, to schools around the country, <clears throat> is that why is it you have all these universities that say they have to cut their budgets when they have large cash reserves? You know, the people, there's dark humor about, oh, you can never touch the reserves. And it almost, it produces this sense of absurdity when you're at an institution that has millions and in some cases billions in the bank and they say they can't touch it. And uh, that's not for you, right? And you say, well, why? Well, some of the credit rating agencies will say that that is what we've decided your rainy day fund needs to be and you can't use it in a rainy day. And in addition, if you disagree with us, we'll, in we'll in increase your interest payments. So that's a big problem. The second is who pays off these bonds. Um, it was one thing when, uh, I mean, there's always been a degree to which students have been paying for education, even if tuition might be free. So they pay in the form of fees, they pay in the form of services that may or may not be mandatory. But as schools have increasingly shifted the costs of education from the taxpayer to the student, it means that you have students not only paying for the construction of buildings uh, or the maintenance of buildings that might have been covered by the state, but now you have them making interest payments. And so this is important for linking student and worker solidarity together because the growing tuition is covering things like interest payments and uh, and kind of ex like pretty frank rent seeking from Wall Street. And it's being used as an excuse to not pay living wages to instructors and to staff. And so now you see universities in this bind. Now it's a, it's a decentralized higher education system we're in. It doesn't mean all schools are uh, have the equal amount of interest payments or amount of bonds that they've floated. But since the Great Recession, you see more states like the state of California, where I am, 
uh, that have stopped contributing to the funds necessary to maintain their buildings or replace them with new ones or expand their campuses and instead telling their universities float bonds to cover that. Instead, you get low interest. But so you get locked into these things that feel like the structural adjustment programs that other countries get subjected to. And then in addition, in crisis moments, like during COVID, you start to see this, uh, oh, hey, we have great credit. We have this unexpected um, uh, budget shortfall. Maybe we can float some more bonds. And in a moment when uh, investors are sitting on piles of cash and not knowing what a safe bet is, they might actually invest in higher education. But ultimately what they're doing is they're investing in getting rates of return that even if modest by Wall Street standards are going to mean that students are not just paying interest on their own loans, but their very tuition itself is paying interest on loans. And so it's like a double form of exploitation that's taking place that we really need to change. And it's, I've been very impressed by teachers around the country, and I, I am frankly not one of them. I have learned from teachers around the country who are educating people about these issues and saying uh, this financialization uh, needs to be named and challenged. So let me just ask you a really big question, because this is something that's been bugging me for a very, very long time. How undemocratic are credit ratings? How much of a threat are credit ratings to a public good like education? Oof. Well, I mean, other than what I've just described, which is to say, well, let me let me put it this way. As someone who is a faculty member, uh, not an expert in credit ratings, but an active union member, my union works for, toward the ultimate goal is budget democracy. We see economic democracy as fundamental to real democracy, and we see shared governance as of institutions, including in higher education, is not very meaningful unless we uh, have a transparent process for not only seeing what our institution is spending, but for influencing its own budget priorities. Anytime you have an outside group of people who, as a result of their being wealthy, rather than knowing anything about the institution or industry that you're involved in, setting the standards for what you should do with your budget, it's usually a problem. This makes me think that credit ratings are uh, just an enforcement of undemocratic economics. And that's what's really disturbing to me about it, that it has so much power over our decision making when it comes to how we fund things. You also write that at the University of California, where you write where we teach, the radical student protests against tuition increases in 2009 were partly informed by the public letter from Bob Meister, uh, president of the Council of University of California Faculty Association, stating that they pledged your tuition to service institutional debt and that the 30% tuition increases students were facing were partly going to Wall Street. Yet, despite those protests, the UC system doubled its debt burden between 2009 and 2016 to offset budget cuts and has sold billions of dollars of new bonds since the pandemic began in 2015. The system was already paying $2,200 per student just in interest payments. We shudder to think of how much that figure might be for the 2021-2022 academic year. Were they forced into this situation? Was there any other way that they could have dealt with budget cuts than by going into debt to Wall Street? Was this their only option? 
Well, this is where you get to a kind of complex set of institutions, each of which, I mean, it's just really remarkable because I see myself as pretty much near the bottom of this institutional pyramid. And yet at the same time, what's so striking is that each layer above me, there's a group of people who say they're powerless, right? And who say somebody else is responsible for this problem. You know, the department chairs say that the dean set the budget, the dean say the provost, the provost says the president, the president says the chancellor, the chancellor says, well, it's the governor, and the governor says it's the, the voters. And every single one of them passes the buck in important ways so that you have this chain reaction that has accommodated the tax revolt of the 1970s and kind of codified it into law. So that's one piece where at the state government level, what has happened is that as school populations have become more diverse and as more young people who are faced with the effects of the attack on the working class, the de-unionization of the American workforce, and the gigification of the American economy, they see um, a college credential as being used as a form of employment discrimination. So they want to go to college sometimes just to like feel like more options are open to them because uh, businesses are not investing in job training. So you see more demand, more diversity of the student body, and yet middle-class and upper-class people wanting to pay lower taxes. So this creates a series of real challenges where if we don't challenge that dynamic, and in some ways, if we don't name it as partly racist as well as classist, we are in a series of kind of um, choices that, that reproduce the problems that we know exist and make them worse. And then in addition, there's the federal level. Even if states got their acts together fully, even if they said we want to fully fund higher education and make it free or close to free, or we want to make it free for people who can't afford it. And, and even if they were totally effective in doing so, states don't print their own money. The federal government does. So anytime there's a recession, uh, there's, they either need to offset it with new taxes very quickly, and even that's somewhat difficult, or they need to benefit from some kind of counter-cyclical spending at the national level. And the federal government is only unevenly committed to that and certainly not committed to it as a higher education policy. So that means when you have a big recession and the effects of decades of defunding, you now have a series of sort of uh, this is hell kind of choices right? Unless you challenge the structure of the political economy itself, then you're in trouble. Then you're saying we need to do more with less, or we need to commercialize and financialize our institutions, or we need to do both. And that's the kind of vicious cycle higher ed has been in for decades, but it has accelerated so much in the past 10 years that I think we are in both a scary and exciting moment. What's scary is we can imagine real institutional collapse at certain levels where high tuition and low job prospects uh, are producing schools no longer even being able to pay their bills. Um, but what is exciting 
is that the delegitimization of the tuition spikes uh, in kind of 2009, 2010, 2011 that were not unique to California, all across the country, the, the slow boil was increased much more quickly. So people got to see what was going on. And even though they don't fully understand how long this process has been going and why it's been going on, they know there's popular awareness that something is wrong with higher education in America. And that provides an opportunity for people who have long been critics to say, we need something new and different. And, um, and I think that's, that's the moment we're in. I think we're naive if we expect the leaders of college institutions to demand a new political economy that fully funds higher education. They've first, they've shown that they're willing to accommodate budget cuts to a degree that is really unconscionable from the perspective of students and workers. But second, as scholars of academic capitalism have shown, um, many of these people are very enthusiastic about commercializing their institutions. In fact, that's what they were hired to do. In a number of states, they may have no educational experience whatsoever, and they come from the private sector and they think because they wrecked some, uh, some other industry in the name of uh, extracting profits for hedge fund levels, that they can come to higher ed and do the same. And I really think, I mean, it, it's, um, it's a tall ask. It's not an easy one, but I think students and workers at college campuses need to work together to create plans to change this system because we can't expect the administrators to do it for us and the politicians won't understand the problem unless we educate them. You were talking about having something new and different, but let's go back to in the past and something old for a moment, uh, because you begin by writing the campaign for a new deal for higher education in the United States must address the fact that more than two thirds of faculty members in higher education today are temporary employees working in demoralizing gig economy conditions, and that too many of them suffer from low pay, large class sizes and excessive workloads that punish rather than reward excellent teaching. Has this always been the case, or was there ever a time when college and university instructors were not temporary workers in a gig economy suffering from low pay despite increased work? Was there a time when teachers had it better, when, instru when higher education instructors had it better than they have it now, and what changed? This is a great question. The answer is yes and no. Um, we are in a different higher educational system that's being asked to do different things than the ones of decades prior. Um, we're in a much larger system that is serving a much more diverse population. Um, in the past, there has always been a need for temporary instructors who are, uh, in, as one euphemism goes, visiting. Uh, that is to say, us, uh, you know, you have, imagine you have like a regular workforce, but it takes a long time to hire a new person, maybe a few months or a year. In the meantime, you bring in somebody temporary, they fill in, and then you, you have that person fill in while you look for a, a long-time replacement, uh, a long-term replacement. And then you may use that temporary person. Actually, that person may apply for the job to have a full-time job. Well, what's happened is that over time, that kind of position, which always was abused somewhat, has become used as a kind of loophole to respond to the pressures of doing more with less. And so the question, part of what you, I hear you asking is, 
how long have we been asking higher education to do more with less? And the answer is a very long time. <laughs> there, are, there are debates among historians and activists that sometimes produce more heat than light about, well, did it start in the 60s? Did it start in the 70s? Has it always been cooked into the system? Um, what is most important to know is that it has become much worse since the 1960s. So the system has grown, but instead of it being something like 55% of all instructors uh, being on the tenure track, uh, which is to say having long-term job stability and academic freedom, and then many more instructors who aren't on the tenure track having full-time jobs, over the last few decades, you've seen a major increase in the number of college teachers who are part-time workers and who lack professional status. So they, um, they don't have guarantees of consistent employment. They don't have living wages. In many cases, they don't have health benefits or even pensions. Uh, sometimes this is even true in union shops and the problem is widespread. Uh, it is at its worst in the for-profit uh, college industry, uh, which has grown as a kind of parasite to just uh, get low-income students to take out loans and then have most of the money they take out in loans go to shareholders rather than to educators and to schools. And so that's, and those schools have essentially abolished the full-time consistent uh, position of the college teacher. But at community colleges, the, probably the most democratic and certainly the most popular of the higher education institutions we have in the US, uh, they have been at the vanguard of um, replacing uh, kind of full-time professional status teachers with low wage temps. And that's where you're most likely to find the poorest teachers. But you see it across the academic spectrum. You see it at Harvard, you see it at Long Beach City College, and you see it everywhere in between. And one of the great tragedies of this is that schools have evolved into things whose budget priorities are not primarily focused on teachers and teaching. And that's why Mia MacGyver and I, when we wrote our piece for the special series that the AAP is putting out on the need for a new deal for higher education, we didn't say we need a new deal for low-wage teachers, though we do. We said we need a new deal for college teachers and teaching because institutions across the spectrum don't value teachers and teaching the way they should. They have become so saddled with, and in some cases have so embraced uh, a variety of services, public-private partnerships, rent-seeking activities that they've become distracted from their core missions, and they have come to rely upon a disposable workforce that, uh, that turns their mission from one of education to credentialing. And we as part-time teachers uh, and as contingent faculty can see this most clearly because we are the ones who are hired to teach the basic skills that students need to succeed in college. For decades, Colleges have decided, for reasons I don't entirely understand, that they don't want writing instructors to have living wages and professional status. I don't get it. If you can't read or write, you can't do much else in college. And yet at the same time, 
there's just this industry practice that writing instructors are not to have job security or living wages unless, and, and so as a result, and on one way, we have uh, probably some of the greatest leaders of faculty and grad student unions are writing instructors who say, this is outrageous. Uh, my colleague who recommended I talk here, and I should say, um, he and I were not in collusion. I had no idea that he was suggesting <laughs> that I come onto your show. Uh, I, I was laughing the entire time you were reading the email uh, from him because I could hear his voice throughout. Uh, he is one of many writing instructors who has worked in the trenches, who decide uh, they love their job, they care about the mission, but they also, they can't believe it. They're like, why, why would an institution this wealthy not pay for basic writing instruction? And the same is true, uh, or invest in it, I should say, to the degree that they should, like it matters. And the same is true for math instruction, the same is true for language instruction. All the core skills you need to succeed in college are treated as like extras that anybody can do. And, and you have a situation where the teachers not only are paid low wages so that they have to teach a lot of classes or they have to be independently wealthy or they have to have side jobs. Those are, or they have to have, um, uh, be married to people who have uh, better jobs than they do. Those are the ways that you survive unless you live in uh, abject poverty, which frankly some do. Um, I had shared an office with someone who was a homeless instructor at Long Beach City College. Um, but but why, why impose that level of hardship uh, on instructors? Um, it, it, it actually shows a kind of irrationality in the system. And, um, and on the one hand, when you're stretched that thin, it's hard to then set aside part of your life to also fight those conditions. But I think that's the opportunity we have right now, uh, which is uh, we've got to speak out, we have to organize, and we have to say, if, if we're going to have free college, we also have to have better college. Trevor, the conversations I enjoy the most are the ones that I learn the most from. And the ones that I learn the most from are conversations like this one when I have 50 some pre scripted questions. And then all of a sudden you come up with, you say things that lead me to have follow up questions instead and abandoning my script because there's so much, so much of what you just said that I want to follow up on. First of all, so does this situation with colleges being so handcuffed to financialization, this sounds like it, it predates neoliberalism. So what impact has neoliberalism had on the university system and university and higher education? This is a great question. I, I recently got in a a sort of scholarly tangle with somebody that'll be published soon that, that addresses this question. And I don't have definitive answers. <clears throat> My belief is that neoliberalism as an ideology and political project that delegitimizes taxing the wealthy, delegitimizes government spending as big government, that encourages uh, the shifting of the costs of public goods to the consumer and turning it into a private good, even when it's ostensibly done by the government. Like that rationale, uh, I think, provided cover for these practices and contributed to their acceleration since the 1970s. Um, 
I think Republicans like Ronald Reagan were at the vanguard, but as we know about the history of neoliberalism, the combination of corporate spending uh, to boost this otherwise unpopular ideology, combined with uh, some of the other kind of uh, racist appeals and other appeals that conservatives used to otherwise foist an agenda that was for the few on the many, that came to be embraced in a defensive way by the Democratic Party as well. And so, I, you know, a lot of the damage was done 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, 2000s. And I think while the, the spikes, again, the tuition spikes in kind of 2008, 2009, 2010, uh, they brought a lot of um, outrage that is correct and righteous and uh, some states have sought to respond to it, like the state of California, by rolling back some of the two. They haven't rolled back the tuition hikes, but they've increased funding back to the schools again, uh, at least to get them back to some baseline level, though not at the capital budgets. But I think there's been a waking up. And, and what excites me about the work that I and my colleagues are doing, even though we're sort of lowly temporary instructors and working with students and other kind of uh, staff uh, just to try to talk about these issues is that I think that public anger about tuition increases has also raised really fundamental issues about capitalism in America. Young people being asked to pay more for less at school while facing a job market with anemic job growth that is mainly located in de-unionized gig kinds of jobs have been at the vanguard of asking critical questions of the economic system we're in and saying that this is unacceptable. And this has actually positioned higher education in, at, within the debate about what kind of economy that we have. Because for decades, what politicians, especially so Republican politicians might have always, you know, had a chip on their shoulder about higher education and been happy to defund it or to privatize it. Democrats who were neoliberals, public education was central to their position that you don't need unions anymore, that unions are an obstruction to economic growth, that we can have free trade. The Clintonian model was to say, if you've been displaced by your job, we'll provide public school and you'll go get retrained and you'll just get a better or a different job. And that's the, you just have to constantly be learning and growing and stay competitive. Well, that had its own cruelty, but it also depended on the image of the meritocracy and the, on public higher education and on workers internalizing that it was within their control to stay afloat or maybe even to have some social mobility. Once the cost of tuition got high enough and people in higher ed who had been critical of what's going on started getting a bigger platform that you know people weren't like, oh, these are just privileged teachers, who cares? But where they're saying, no, there's really big problems here. Then all of a sudden we can see higher education as a microcosm and how uh, at first the system was functioning to reproduce inequality. It was not providing low income, disproportionately people of color with the quality education they deserved in the first place. And it was putting students in debt. 
and and therefore it's part of a bigger set of problems and our campaigns to reform it can also say it, it instead of trying to pull back a myth that we're in a meritocracy maybe we can think of a different kind of way of promoting education and in so doing also provide a better deal for our students and you point out how uh, poor teaching conditions lead to poor quality education, poor learning conditions. And you were just saying how for-profit universities, they put so little money back into the teachers, back into the students. They, the money goes to shareholders and investors. And this undermines the ability to teach people fundamentals, to, to learn the basics that they need to know so they can move forward with their education. How much can that pressure on having these non-tenured, temporary worker, uh, gig economy instructors teaching people the fundamentals, what impact, impact can that have on those students to progress with their education, to progress with their degree? If you don't know how to write, if you don't know your basic skills, how can you learn any more beyond that? Right, and in addition, if you've been warehoused in your high school and you've come to see schooling as an oppressive institution, which I think for many people it partly is, um, and you feel you'd much rather kind of just get a job in the job market, but you're being told you can't even be a manager in your retail outlet unless you have a college degree and you go back to college, already you have a, a, a very reasonable attitude that this system is, is messed up. Right. And so you need uh, if, if you if you really are investing in sort of social transformation and not just in credentialing and you're not just extracting rents from those students and trying to either get them in debt or use their kind of need for a credential as a way for other kind of job growth. But if you really want to serve those students, then you want to have people with kind of professional standards who have been trained to assist them and who have workloads that allow them to do their very best work. I don't want to go so far as to say there's no learning going on or that the that all non-tenure track instructors are, um, are bad teachers or that workload issues are just specific to non-tenure track instructors. One of the effects of kind of the gigification of higher education instruction is that you also have a lot of responsibilities placed on tenure track instructors that just get them in endless meetings and, and require them to do certain kinds of things that lecturers aren't even allowed to do. But the bigger issue you're getting to is that the conditions I'm talking about just as a, as a professional, like why would you hire somebody without a search? <laughs> you know, why would you never evaluate their teaching? Why would you only depend on student evaluations, but never observe whether they're doing their job? Why would you provide them no professional development where you say, here are the best practices in the field of education as we know it, and here are the ways that you implement it, and here's how we're going to support you. Now, to the degree that we have those things, it's usually at wealthy institutions, uh, a few cases where there's been dynamic leadership, and in a number of cases, it's because unions have fought for them. In some ways, and, and my union is in the midst of a campaign like this right now, we are fighting to get the, our employer to do its job. <laughs> it sounds so strange. We actually, in, as lecturers in the University of California, 
we have been told that the University of California does not want to have to evaluate our teaching in our first five years. And it's insane to us, right? Like, we're like, we want to be evaluated. We want actually you to invest in us so that we can be better teachers who serve our students. And, but, but they are so attached to a low wage model and they regard this aspect of their educational mission uh, so little, or they have so little regard for it, that, 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 yeah, right at the point of production in the education system, you have a kind of meltdown. And the way that it impacts students, I've had students tell me, yeah, we had an instructor who would show up late or leave early because they had to get to another class on the other side of town or they would be so overwhelmed by their workloads that they wouldn't be able to grade our papers in time and we wouldn't get proper feedback. Or they'd be so absent-minded, uh, though I, I don't think this is an essential part of teaching, but there are so many economic and emotional stresses placed on somebody with a high workload that when one thing goes wrong, it's easy to, for it to have a cascading effect. But I have had students talk to me about how they worried that they were not going to um, be able to graduate in time because uh, they felt like they were not learning in their class. Um, this, I don't want to exaggerate this. Um, this is the worst part of the situation we're talking about. There are other aspects that are remarkable and amazing. Um, but something so basic as this should not be a problem in America. And um, the fact that it is shows the need for um, some pretty big change. And you point out how these teachers who are teaching the fundamentals, the teachers who are in the most precarious position, those teachers, they do not have a voice when it comes to university governance. So they are the ones who have the most contact with the students. They're the ones who have the most contact with incoming students. They're the ones who have the most contact with knowing the teaching and learning experiences in universities in the past. Were teachers at that level more involved in university governance than they are today? So uh, shared governance is something through which uh, universities are supposed to allow control of the curriculum to be in the hands of faculty. Um, there's always been, and, and the idea was, uh, if you just put it in the hands of people who had the financial bottom line of the school uh, and, and they weren't checked by people who had professional training, you'd be in big trouble. So there's always been a struggle to protect that. It's always been an uneven goal. Um, and lecturers, people without tenure, have almost always been excluded from it. <laughs> and so one of the consequences of schools because of their bottom line, um, relying increasingly on people without tenure, just in order to, uh, in order to, basically subsidize the rest of the institution. Um, so take the tuition revenue generated by the classes they get and give less of it to the teacher and give more of it to other parts of the school. So in that trade, they've also meant that like a growing a declining percentage of the total faculty shape the curriculum. And those who do have less contact with first year uh, students and with students in some general education classes. That doesn't mean uh, tenure track instructors have no knowledge of those classes, 
but it does mean that, uh, yes, their voice is left out. I'm somebody who, um, I'm of two minds of this. <clears throat> On the one hand, I see a lot of the shared governance that is offered to tenure track instructors as totally bogus, like just as lame as uh, student government seemed when I was in college, uh, which is to say sort of like fake power where you perform legislative actions, but because there's no budget transparency and you have no say over the budget, uh, it's a lot of performative work where people who are, it's like the, the farm teams for the middle management of the university. And so I'm not like excited to participate in that process. But on the other hand, um, when lecturers are excluded from it, that's part of how tenure track instructors don't care about the conditions of lecturers. So if lecturers had a vote over what, what classes they taught or how their classes were taught, all of a sudden, tenure track instructors who have been enlisted in the process of destroying their own profession might actually wake up and pay attention and say, you know what? Maybe we should evaluate these faculty. <laughs> maybe we should, maybe we should like know what they're doing in the classroom and uh, care about it in a meaningful way. So that's, that's one reason to say that, um, including lecturers in governance matters, in addition to the fact that they can provide insights on, from on the ground reporting that should inform the school's educational mission. Just a couple more questions for you, Trevor, because I want to make sure that we also get to other reforms that you have considered or other changes within the university system. Uh, you write that we recommend that state governments establish parity factors for all public college and university faculty. And you add that we believe that parity will change regional labor markets substantially without dictating or micromanaging pay scales. We're excited to see that legislation to establish 75 percent parity was recently introduced in New Hampshire and legislation to establish 100 percent parity was recently introduced in Illinois. We hope that this model quickly finds its way into national policy. So we're doing this show from Chicago. How might that substantial change of uh, parity manifest itself here in Illinois? Well, it would be huge. So um, without knowing a, a great amount of the details of the working conditions of teachers in Illinois, if they're anything like the rest of the country, and I assume they are, then you have a, a community college and possibly teaching college system uh, whereby uh, you not only have uh, temp faculty in your as educators, but you have faculty who are paid less per course who are in that temp status. And so if you want one way to promote not just economic justice, but for me, the key to changing the system is changing the incentive structure. You don't want administrators to have an incentive to deprofessionalize their faculty. And one way to reduce that incentive is to say, no, you cannot pay somebody less just because they're low wage, just because, excuse me, they're a temporary instructor. You have to sit, pay them the same amount. So the fact that unions have bargained for this in some uh, shops. So I found, I recently found out that in Marin County, a very wealthy county in California, uh, the California Federation of Teachers uh, Union in that community college system bargained for 95% pay parity between their non-tenure track and tenure track instructors. It's not a perfect system, but if we were to try to bring that to scale from the bottom up, 
we'd have to negotiate like a hundred different contracts and all these different schools. And then it would be unevenly enforced. If we could just bypass this decentralized bargaining system and go straight to the state ledge, even though it's hard to convince state legislators in some cases, then you can just mandate it. You can say, this is ridiculous. And honestly, it's a great way to educate your state legislature. Many of them say, wait, we're, we're spending hundreds of millions of dollars on public higher education. You mean to tell me they're not paying their teachers a living wage? You say, yes, and there's something you can do about it. Um, and so this can be a, a really important change. And Illinois can lead the way on this issue uh, if, if you want to kind of, um, uh, it would certainly send out a beacon of light for the rest of the country. We have been speaking with historian Trevor Griffey, co-author of the American Association of University Professors website article, A New Deal for College Teachers and Teaching Faculty Equity Equals Student Success, success which Trevor co-wrote with Mia McIver. We want to thank listener Andrew for taking the money from Trevor to send us. Hey, hey, hey. What? Wait, what? Did I say something? You can find out more about Trevor on Twitter at Trevor Griffey. One last question for you, Trevor. Uh, and it's what we call the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. You write, additionally, federal and state officials who shape policy for public higher education and vote on funding must improve their understandings of higher education, teaching, labor. The Affordable Care Act, for example, lowballs faculty labor by assuming that every hour of classroom teaching time requires only 1.25 hours of classroom of work outside the classroom. Advising students, preparing to teach, grading papers, and writing letters of recommendation too often go unpaid altogether, subjecting non-tenure track faculty to wholesale wage theft. So, Trevor, to what extent does the U.S. education system depend upon wage theft? And does that make higher education in the United States inevitably unsustainable? Um, I would say it depends on low-wage teachers. And certainly um, you could also say that that is a form of wage theft. Uh two things about this, uh, one negative and one positive. Uh, the negative is that, um, but well, actually let me focus on the positive for a second and I'll come back to the negative. One thing I haven't said as part of this talk, and I know that this is uh, contrary to the idea that we're in hell, is that uh, Bernie Sanders has introduced legislation as part of a college for all bill that would not only eliminate student debt and provide free college, but it would also mandate that the schools that receive federal money have 75% of their instructional workforce on the tenure track. I think this would be a enormous boom uh, and that it was, it is very much worth supporting. And so I encourage your listeners to check out the college for all act and support it. Um, how much, Oh, but here's the, here's the both bad and good part as it relates to the question of, how much do our universities depend on faculty labor exploitation? Uh, they, they stand on it. They rest on it. They depend on it. Um, and like the rest of the American workforce, one of the big open questions is if we fight and we get our rights. Uh, excuse me, the dog is barking in the background. 
will we will we face the other tool that employers use against all the workers that try to improve their wages and working conditions, which is automation. So at the very moment that we push for more wages and we say you have to invest in teachers, there's a chance that they could shift us to online instruction curated by chat managers with prepackaged classes and say, I guess we can, I guess, I guess poor and working class people, we can no longer afford to provide them teachers. So we have a multi-front struggle ahead of us. I gotta know what kind of dog you have. That uh, sounded <laughs> it's a, huge. It's a, it's a pit lab mix. Uh, it's very territorial. And uh, she uh, really is, is part of an, a, a long-term struggle against the mailman. <laughs> well, thank you very much for being on the show today, Trevor. Really enjoyed the conversation. You can count on the fact that I'll be bugging you in the future to have you back on the show because I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thank you for having me. All right, take care. This is not the media. This is hell. If you liked what you just heard, please show us how much by supporting completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Go to thisishell.com and click on support or subscribe to our weekly Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Alex, please remind our listeners what this week's question from hell is and how our listeners are answering the question so far. This week's question from hell is... What medieval trade is coming back soon? What medieval trade is coming back soon? Barrett M. says, Iron Maidens, bro. <laughs> I don't know if that's the manufacturing of Iron Maidens or uh, women getting into the me- metallurgy trade there. I'm not too sure. Kim either. G. says, Dental Barbers. Kevin O. says, Surgeon slash Barber. <laughs> I'd go to Surgeon Barber, I think. Uh, Nick E. says, Scribe. John H. says, Will they bring back the old two-finger salute in the new recycled feudalism we now find ourselves? Deny the peasants health care and tell them to plug the offending hole with their two fingers and get back to work. <laughs> Chase C says, with how little seems to be done in the way of halting or even slowing down the devastating effects of climate change, I see a future in which bespoke chamber pot craftspeople will have the last laugh over the bidet. <laughs> what? Medieval Yikes. trade is coming back soon. Kevin, uh, Kevin W says, now where did I put the... Ah, there they are. Better check the expiration date and posted a picture hopefully photoshopped of prescription leeches in his medicine cabinet. <laughs> Simon S says the night soil futures exchange <laughs> strawberry S or sorry, Sparrow S says in which either is according to Wikipedia, I had to look this up an unknown person or thing or an edible predatory white fish, which seems the opposite of an unknown person. <laughs> yeah, it sure does. Uh, Mark C says new and improved torture chambers and no whack wolf says heresy and witchcraft. Plague doctors have their comeback already, so we'll need an inquisitor, inquisitionary, inquisitionary industrial complex to light up the economy with bonfires. Well, that was a tough one. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we have to have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Following Jeff Dorch in the moment of truth. We will have even more of your answers to this week's question from hell on tomorrow's show when we're back here with Richard Norwood. And we even got a letter in the mail about Richard, and I'll be sharing that on tomorrow's show. Alex, who is on tomorrow's Wednesday's live one-hour show beginning at 10 a.m. Chicago time right here at thisishell.com? Uh, let me see if Adolf Reed wrote back to me. Uh, nope, so maybe not Adolf Reed tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> still working on it. Still working on tomorrow's show. And what about Thursday? Uh, we got a Thursday booked. Uh, Yannick Giovanni Marshall will be on to talk about his Al Jazeera op-ed piece, Totalitarianism at 38th in Chicago, A Minnesotan Lie. And Jeff's going to be doing a moment of truth. Yep. 
Uh, Yannick was on before, and I couldn't remember why. Do you remember what he talked about the last time he was on? Uh, yeah, it was right after George Floyd. Oh, oh okay. So it was in the middle of the uprising. Oh, okay. Week after the uprising. So it was from 2020. I, you know, time is weird. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Alex Jerry. Thanks to our guest, Trevor Griffey, for joining us today. Thanks to Alex Jerry for producing, pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.